Away and, and possibly next week as well, I'm not sure, but anyway, um, I'd like to do some readings from the Terra Gata. And as I mentioned to the monks the other day, I've just finished translation of the Terra Gata, and uh, there's a bit of an introduction with it. The files are available on the computer there, we've got a printout here if anybody wants to borrow that later on. Um, so, uh, this was a project which I initiated as part of what the work I'm doing for Sutta Central. And uh, uh, we're trying to get a complete digital translation of uh, all the early Buddha texts. And the Terra is one of the collections, which is both, um, I, think a, I think, a really wonderful collection. Uh, and also, unfortunately, there's no uh, digital version available currently, so I thought it was a worthwhile thing to do. So when my student, then uh, Nibida, approached me asking for a, a project to help learn Pali, then being the completely selfish uh, person that I am, I say, why don't you do that? Because it will be good for me, not because it's good for her learning Pali. Because <laughs> it's a ridiculous project to do for learning Pali, because it's like, really hard. <laughs> so don't study the Terra guitar if you want to learn Pali. Anyway, she uh, was, went and, and did a rendering of it uh, from the Pali and also using uh, K.R. Norman's translation. And those of you who might be familiar with Pali translations will know that K.R. Norman was the president of the Pali Tech Society for many years. And he uh, uh, did translate, I think he must have translated pretty much all of the verses in the uh, early, early Buddhist texts or the early Pali texts. And uh, he was probably the greatest linguist, indological linguist, that the modern times have thrown up. Um, but he's much better at Pali than he is at English, unfortunately. And there seems to be a peculiarity of linguists that they are good at all the other languages except for the language they're actually talking or writing in. Um, but anyone who's done any translation will know that actually most of the time when you're doing translation, the, the, the language you actually need, that the hard part is the language you're translating into, not the language you're translating from. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's much easier to hear something and understand it, right, than it is to write it and express it yourself. Yeah? So uh, most of the time, the problems you have in translation uh, are not linguistic problems. In some cases, obviously, they are, but most of the time it's not a linguistic problem. Most of the time, the biggest problem is how do we actually express that in modern English? And uh, so I won't go into too much of the background in that, but just to say my, my aim was to, to write something which was I, 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 in, in my mind, I kind of was thinking of like an Aussie translation, right? I, by which I mean kind of like bright sunshine and things are kind of clear and bits kind of straightforward and direct and, and not too much of this kind of arty-farty intellectual European nonsense, right? But more <laughs> just kind of... <laughs> it's more just, more just kind of plain language. Anyway... So that was my aim. So what, I, what I'd like to do, and again I'm being completely selfish here, is to uh, read some verses and uh, get some feedback if you like it or you don't like it or something. I haven't chosen any so far, so I'm open to, you know, open to taking requests, as I did in my last few days. Um, and 
Uh, any, any feedback about the translation and so on would be most uh, helpful, particularly just you know, if you're reading it or whatever, if you find anything that's uh, obscure or problematic or you don't know why I've done things certain ways, then I'd, I'd love to hear that. My aim is to make everything as transparent as possible so you can just read it and you know what it means. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Subhuti. My little hut is roofed and pleasant, sheltered from the wind. So rain, sky, if you wish. My mind is serene and liberated. I practice ardently. Rain, sky. So this to me is this is uh, the first verse. It's not. It's not. Um, uh, there's no particular reason for it being the first one, but to me it really captures something of the essence of the Teragata. And when I think of the Teragata, I think of verses like that. And and it really kind of you know it always kind of. Just feels to me just like as a monk, I just know that feeling so well. You know? You're sitting in your little hut there in the middle of the night, and I, I, for some reason, I always feel really good. You know, just the other day when the, the, there was a big thunderstorm at night time, and you're sitting there in your little hut, and it's raining down everywhere, and you're thinking, oh, all I have is this little hut, and it's fine, rain as much as you like. And I'll just sit here, do my meditation, and uh, that's all, that's fine. What about the word ardently? Is that a good word? Practice ardently. Is that like a word that people use in, in actual language? It's not Aussie. Aussie. <laughs> what would you say in Aussie? In Auslish. Chilling out. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of chilling out. Actually, I'm, practicing, I'm practicing hard, yeah. I'll give it a crack. <laughs> <laughs> By saying that, I was an Aussie translation. I wasn't quite meaning it. Like, you know, the Buddha's like, <laughs> so he said, hey mates, instead of saying monks. Mm. No, I didn't, I didn't mean kind of colloquial Aussie like that, but uh, anyway. Delicious. Delicious, is that good? Mm. Ah, that's good. What is it, Pali? I think it's Atapi. Atapi? Ah, okay, that's a Wikibodus translation for Atapi. Yeah. So I, I kind of sometimes get bigger brothers translation and sometimes change them. I didn't have a particular policy on that. Um, the, I think the reason he chose that word is because the idea of ardent has a kind of fiery side to just like atapi has, like right. burning things away. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So it's actually there's an etymological relationship, or at least meaning relationship, semantic relationship. Exactly, well, yeah. yeah. Between the two. Right? Yeah. That's why, yeah. So I would accept ardent also means passionately and lovely. That's probably the more common yeah, to, to, to love someone ardently. Oh, in that sense, ardently. Yeah. Okay, but strongly, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. okay, so uh, I'm just going to pick out a few verses uh, more or less at random. Uh, you should, so, uh, fourth verse, Puna. You should only associate with the wise, those intent upon good, seeing the goal, being wise, heedful, and discerning. They realize the goal so great and profound. Hard to see, subtle and fine. Next verse by so that, so so this gives you like like some of the, the different um, voices that you find in the Teragata. Like each verse is in one sense supposed to be theoretically kind of by spoken by that monk, right? But actually, they're not really. Uh, sometimes they might be spoken by that monk. Sometimes they might be spoken to them. And sometimes it's not entirely clear. Like that particular verse sounds to me like it was Puna probably teaching somebody. Um, but it might not have been. It might have been somebody teaching Puna. Yeah? Uh, 
And the next one gives another example of that. Uh, this is the uh, verse of Dabban. Once hard to tame, now tamed themselves. Worthy, content, crossed over doubt. Victorious with fears vanished. Dabba is steadfast and has realized Nibbana. Okay, so in that verse, uh, it's obviously an, an Enlightenment verse, again, very characteristic of the Tarakatans, expressing his, his um, feelings of Enlightenment. But it's not entirely sure, is it actually Dabba speaking? Right? It's referring to, Dabba's referred to in the third person there. Is that actually Dabba saying this and referring to himself in the third person? Or is it somebody saying that about Dabba? Perhaps the Buddha saying it about it, or one of the other monks saying it about Dabba. So there are many verses like that where it's not entirely clear to me uh, who exactly the um, author is. Okay, the monk who went to Sitawana, the cool grove, is alone. This is the, the verse of Sitawaniya, which just means the monk who was living in Sitawana. The monk who went to Sitawana is alone, content, practicing samadhi, victorious, with goosebumps vanished, guarding mindfulness of the body, resolute. Okay, so. Just uh, a few points on that one. So Sita Wanda is one of the uh, the cool grove, one of the forests around there. Uh, again, it's not entirely clear really who the author is. It seems to me likely in this case that the name Sita Wanda was probably just given to the verse. They probably didn't know who the monk was, but it mentioned Sita Wanda, so they just said, oh, it must have been the monk who was in Sita Wanda, so they call it Sita Wanda. Um, when I'm, I'm translating, I usually keep samadhi as just samadhi and jhana as just jhana. Sometimes I use serenity for samadhi, but uh, I've given up completely using concentration for samadhi. Um, goosebumps. And you have this Pali idiom where you have like the lomahansa, like the hairs, the hairs rising up on your, on your body. And uh, actually what you say in English is goosebumps. Yeah? So, I'll put goosebumps in. One of the things I found difficult to do when trying to do a, a kind of a, a fluid translation was that a lot of the verses, like this one, uh, uh, a lot of it is just like a list of epithets. You know, it's not like a sort of a fluently constructed sentence, you know, like you find in prose. So it's just like a list of descriptive epithets of that mark. And so it's, it's, trying, it's not, not easy to render it into a smooth uh, sentence. The verse of Belinda Wacha. It was welcome, not unwelcome. The advice I got was good. Of things which are shared, I encountered the best. So, quite a, for me, that's quite an interesting verse. It's one of the ones that's a bit difficult to render. Uh, and it's one which is repeated a number of times in the Teragata. Um, and it's a verse which calls out for some context, right? Obviously, something has happened, and he's saying this. It was welcome, not unwelcome. Uh, the advice I got was good. So presumably, it's a monk who's maybe done something wrong or didn't know how to do something or something like that, and then got some advice or some instruction or some encouragement from one of the other monks. Of things which are, sh are shared, I encountered the best. It's a very, I think that's a very nice idea. Right? So the idea like living in a community, living in a sangha. So that's one of the things that we can share with each other. Right? So you can share water and food and robes and all those physical things, but being able to share support and encouragement uh, through our words is the best thing that we can give to each other. I, does the 
To me, it sounds like it means the Dhamma of things that I counted. I found the best. It sounds like it's just the Dhamma, basically the teaching of the Buddha. It's, it's, it's the kind of feeling you get, right? You hear that? Yeah, but the, from, from the first verse, I, 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 yes, I think it is the Dhamma, but I think it's more, a bit more specific. I think it was like an Avada in a particular context. So mm-hmm. he like got, I don't know the word is there. Um, that's, that, that's, that's what I thought that it meant, that it meant that, that he'd actually been admonished or got some advice on a particular issue, right. rather than just hearing the Dhamma generally. But you can, maybe, maybe you're right, huh? maybe, maybe it's things Dhamma generally. Swagatan. Um, na na pagatan, swagatan na pagatan na idan dumantitan mama. And so it's dumantitan, which literally means kind of advised or something you'd use rather than just a dhamma talk generally. Dumantitan. Sangmi bhadesu dhamme so yang sethang tarupagamirti. Another um, typical verse from the Theragata. Uh, a monk with much joy in the Dhamma spoken or taught by the Buddha would realize the peaceful state, the stilling of activities, bliss. So this is something that you find again and again and again through the Theragata. So much so that it actually becomes a problem of translation is, is like how much joy all of these monks are having. Because they refer to it so often and with so many different words, like you know, rati and pamoja and sukha and all of these, it's hard to find enough words in English that are happy enough to convey the happiness that all of these monks have. And uh, if you're in these verses again and again and again, you know, these, these verses are very much speaking from that place of, uh, uh, of, of happiness and from just being so content to find that happiness. We do find also... The other thing which is interesting is the monks who are struggling, so that's also there as well. But the vast majority of it, they're pretty happy. Wanabacha, 1.13. They look like blue-black storm clouds glistening, cooled with the waters of clear-flowing streams and covered with ladybird beetles. These rocky crags delight me. So again, this is one of those verses which to me is really kind of uh, uh, sums up one of the uh, very characteristic things in the Theragata is these nature verses. And uh, there you find these, many of the monks uh, saying similar kinds of things and uh, sometimes much more extensively speaking from that experience. Right? I mean, that's where these monks are living in these beautiful places in the forest. Yeah? If you've been to around Rajagaha, you look at all of the bare hills on Rajagaha and you think once upon a time there were trees <laughs> and these really would have been cool groves and forests and now it's baking hard rock and sand but anyway uh, so it, this also I think is, 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 is it's such, to me it's such an important part of understanding the experience and the voice from which these monks are talking about you know when we look at the suttas uh, it's very easy sometimes to um, just take it purely, you know, look at what is the doctrine teachings or what is the ideas that are taught and so on, and it can get very abstract. And always have to remember that these things are, are taught in a particular time and place to a particular person or group of people, 
and it had a meaning for that person at that time and that place. And that is just bound up so much with the experience that they had, that, that experience of, of being in nature, and so much joy that they got from that. Okay, I'm getting a few where the... Uh, actually, in most of these, all the first line of the verse is missing. That's bad, isn't it? Just on the compound, yeah. Uh, in fact, it's looking like just about every one from here on in is missing the first line. Sorry about that. No. Oops. No, some of the no the idea. Why well, missing? So I reprinted them. So. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea why that would happen, but anyway. Got an electronic version if you can. Mike, uh, you see. <laughs> I know after a while it gets a bit of covers, so you see. <laughs> Just had a bit of a bit of a sleep. A bit of lazy times. Okay. Alright, so we'll skip over the rest of the ones, but better the two, so to make it okay. Okay, so here's the verse of Valia. This one is a bit hard to uh, translate. Uh, a monkey went up to the little hut with five doors. He circles around knocking on each door again and again. Stand still, monkey. Don't run. Things are different now. You've been caught by wisdom. You won't go far. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, again, speaking to the experience of the, the monks living with the monkeys in the forest, perhaps meant as a metaphor. There's a difference of sense doors, you reckon? Yeah. It's not just talking about a monkey hassling him in his hut. We're all about that, right? Yeah. But anyway, yes, that's the. I assume that's a metaphor. Surfing around, knocking on each door again and again. Stand still. Don't run. Things are different now. So that's how I translated that. Actually, the Pali idiom is something like, uh, 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 "As it was, now it is not," or something like that. I try to put that more idiomatically. You won't go far. Maha, so this is Ganga Kirya, another monk, another one where the verse is just named after the um, after the location. So Ganga Kirya just means the monk who's living on the bank of the Ganges. Uh, my hut on the bank of the Ganges is made from three palm leaves. My arms bowl is a funeral pot. My robe is cast off rags. In the first two rainy seasons, I spoke only one word. In my third rainy season, the mass of darkness was torn apart. So there's some hardcore practice going on there, right? <laughs> okay. So my heart on the bank of the Ganges is making three palm leaves. That's not much for a heart. I hope there are more leaves. <laughs> Arms bowl made from a funeral pot, right? So I don't know, they must have got like bones or something like that and put them in a little bowl or something. Robes cast off rags. And I wasn't quite sure what this next verse, it, it actually just uses the word vasani, which can either mean like a rainy season or actually a year. It's sometimes used as an idiom to mean a whole year. So I'm not sure whether it meant in the first two rains retreats or for the first two years I spoke only one word. But I took the kind of the less extreme example, but perhaps actually what it means is my first two years I only spoke one word. 
So he wasn't keeping a vow of silence. Right? <laughs> He'd still speak, but only when absolutely necessary. <laughs> you know that, that old, there's that old joke about the monk who's keeping the vow of silence, you know, in the Christian monastery? You must know that. No? The monk is only allowed to say one sentence per year. And then he came up to the abbot at the end of the first year and says, okay, you've got one sentence. He says, the food's lousy. <laughs> he comes at the end of the second year and says, okay, what have you got to say? He says, oh, it's really cold here. And then after the third year, he comes up and says, I'm going to disrobe. And the abbot says, well, thank God you've done nothing but complain the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's probably not the one word that this month said to the year period, I guess. There was one Malaysian monk in Nauna who didn't speak for three years. Okay. Yeah. Did it Only two teachers he spoke, he spoke on right. interviews. Yeah. Completely vanished. Yeah. He was there, I thought, once I was in my country and I thought, this monk must have left. Uh-huh. I thought, I haven't seen him for, uh, I think, three, three months. And next day I looked in the dining hall and he was still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's possible. It is possible, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, these things are not, you know, they sound like they're really extreme or whatever, but actually, yeah. Okay, another, another verse. Uh, even, this is the verse of Ajina. Even someone with the three knowledges who has conquered death and without, is without defilements, is looked down on for being unknown by fools without wisdom. But a person who gets food and drink is honoured by them, even if they're a bad character. So when doing this translation, you know, the word I've translated there as defilements is actually asava. And uh, usually what we do when we translate, for some reason, uh, the word kilesa is always translated as defilements, and people use all kinds of strange renderings for asava, like fermentations and taints and all of these kinds of things. But actually, the word kilesa is hardly ever found in the suttas in, this, in a general sense of defilements. It's usually used as upakilesa, it's just a synonym for the five hindrances. Um, but it's only rarely that you find the word kilesa as a general term for defilements. I don't think, like in the Teragata, you don't find it at all, uh, whereas asavas is used all the time. So I thought maybe better just use defilements for answers. Um, but yeah, um, I, I was reading the translation earlier, and it says quite often it mentions the three knowledges. Yeah. Um, but do you say anywhere what the three knowledges are? What that means? They're not. Yeah, they're not defined in the text. But for the three knowledges are the the recollection of past lives, knowledge of uh, seeing um, being three born according to their karma. And then the ending of defilements. This uh, I don't know if you included it at the end anywhere, but this, this might be a helpful thing for the average reader. Who yeah, well, it's one of the things you yeah. There's yeah, there there are some technical terms, obviously, that you can't understand without having some uh, explanation. Yeah. So uh, on the whole, I tried to translate it so that you know, so you wouldn't have to do that. But yeah, there are some cases where you you have to. Yeah. Hopefully not that many, and, and some of these are very kind of standard uh, doctrinal terms. You know. But this, I mean, the aim would ultimately be to do a, a, tra- a translation where you, you just don't need glossaries or footnotes or anything. But in that case, sometimes you look at it and you think, how can I, you know, can you actually translate it, say that the three knowledges, i.e. the knowledge of X, Y, Z, you can't really put that in the translation, it would make it too clumsy, but 
Anyway, okay, here's another one where there was a translation issue. This is Suradha. Rebirth is ended for me. The conqueror's instruction is fulfilled. What they call a net is abandoned. The attachment to being reborn in any state of existence is undone. I've arrived at the goal for the sake of which I went forth from the home life into homelessness, the ending of all fetters. So this is something which uh, really struck me when I was doing this translation. We have this word in Pali called bhava, and bhava uh, literally means existence or being. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi these days translates it as existence. Um, but uh, what, it, what it really means is, is, is getting, uh, getting reborn in some state of being or some state of existence. Right? When you say, nati dani puna bhava, it means now I'm not going to get reborn again. Right? But then when you translate it, now there is no more existence for me. Right? It's a literal translation. Now there is no more existence. What does that actually mean? Now I'm, I, I don't exist anymore? Well, what do you mean you don't exist anymore? And you read it, and I remember sort of looking at these things, and it, it, it takes ages to figure out actually what the thing is meaning. And you're almost forced, if you translate it, now there is no more existence for me, you're sort of almost forced to, to make some kind of philosophical interpretation about it. You know, you're there, but you're not really there, you're kind of there, but you're not self, so you're empty, and so on. But it doesn't mean those things at all. Actually, all it means is you're not going to get reborn, and that's just the idiom that they use to express that. And so there's quite a few words which you find in Pali, uh, which uh, just have that meaning or that idiom of talking about being reborn. And uh, when they're translated, that <laughs> meaning just doesn't come across, and so they, they're very open to being read in different kind of ways. So I tried to make that much more explicit. So the attachment to being reborn in any state of existence is undone. So the Pali is Bhavanetti Samuhata. Uh, so it's much more kind of longer translation. I don't know what do you think of that. Good idea, or does that work? What is neti? Neti there, what is that? Neti is like the string. Yeah, no, but what is your... Uh, just attachment. Attachment. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, I think we can translate Bhava Neti as the conduit to existence. Exactly. The conduit. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> Even conduit, I'm not even sure. I mean, it's, 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 it's obscure, but I'm not even sure that's accurate. I think, I think, I think, the, I think the underlying idea of the Bhavaneti, you know, you have these kind of stories sometimes where you see people who, who actually see rebirth as being like a string. String of love. Yeah, it's like a string that, that people can actually visualize. I know in one of Arjun Mun's stories, for example, he talks about that. It's like, it's like being a string that actually hooks consciousness on. And I think it actually stems from that. And there's this actually almost like a literal vision which people, some people can get where you see almost like, a, like a, a psychic vision of a string. But anyway, that's the idea, is that there's, some, there's something connecting. The, the bhavaneti, the conduit to existence, of course, just means craving. Um, yeah. But that's why I used attachment, so hopefully it keeps that idea of something that ties one life onto the next. Mm. Yeah. Maybe you can put a <laughs> The string of life with attaches you to next. That's right, yeah. I went through a permanent thing there. I tried using life for Bhava. Actually, life isn't a bad translation of Bhava, right? So so future that's normally what we say, isn't it? Like past lives and future lives, right? But then then it kind of it sounds it sounds a bit problematic when you say, Oh, I don't have any attachment to life anymore, right? Oh, I'm practicing in order to annihilate all life, right? (laughs) 
That's a problem. That's a good one. <laughs> That's great. That's I understand it, but I'm not sure how it's going to come across. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's difficult to not to not have footnotes and things like this because uh, you know many of these monks they heard the teachings of the Buddha at the time and they, they probably discussed the Dharma and they, they had I guess a certain set of of concepts that they would use. I'm sure even some of these exclamations, you know, like we are the Pachin Ram sometimes, so talk about the driverless bus. So if one of us reaches enlightenment and we say, oh, enjoy the driverless bus, you know, somebody reading about that 100 years should say, what the heck are they talking about? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so that has to be in there also somehow, is that there's a vocabulary that they were sharing that we don't necessarily have access to. Yeah, yeah. That, obviously, there needs to be you know there needs to be that kind of discussion and explanation of things. I'm not sure that footnotes are the best way of doing that. Yeah. Um, or you could just yeah, it's not to, the problem that I have with footnotes, which which I've got a growing unease with the idea of footnotes over the past few years, is is that essentially it it um, it. It, it gives it, it creates an authoritative voice, yeah, whereby the, the translator has a uniquely authoritative voice on the text, and I don't think that's the case, except obviously in cases where the translators explain why they translated something a certain way. Right? In that case, obviously they do have a you know, unique authority, but normally a translator doesn't have any unique authority on the text. When I've been dealing with a lot of different texts for sort of central, you realise that actually a lot of the things that a lot of people are putting in footnotes are actually just rubbish, or they're just wrong, or they're irrelevant, or they're just confused, or they're dubious, or they're at the very least capable of being interpreted in another way. And so, which is fine, right? That's humanity, right? We say things and, you know, sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad, right? But... Uh, so that's my, my problem is, that is, is, is to not create that, that, that sort of sense of a uniquely authoritative voice. So that would be the, the, my idea is to leave the footnotes out of the text, and then, but then you can have a separate thing, which may be an essay where someone says, now I'm going to discuss these suttas, or you know, here's my glossary for these suttas, or something like that. Uh, and then, then you can see, well, that's just you know, one person's perspective on them. Yeah. So that's kind of the approach I'm taking. Well, if you, yeah, like footnotes, can you write like just a note on the page under that verse? So it's still included in the text rather than at the back? You could. I just think like that simile is quite rich with the string, so even though we capture the meaning, which is perfect, mm-hmm. and you lose that simile in the description, then it's, well, it's quite good. Yeah, the other problem with footnotes, and part of it is that problem of authority, the other problem is a problem of immersion. Like when you're when you when you're reading something, it doesn't actually apply so much in these cases because they're just kind of very short and so on. But when you're reading something, especially getting into longer suttas, there's a sense where you can actually sort of really get into it. You know, you, you become absorbed into it, you're, you're, and so on. And like footnotes, to me, reading something with footnotes is like you're sitting there listening to a dhamma talk, and then there's a monk who's sitting beside you who's sort of nudging you and saying, actually, what is <laughs> and you're you kind of taken out of the flow and uh, it seems to me that we have so many things that are already doing that right? more and more and more things that are already wanting to, to, to take us out of the flow so again my idea is to try to, try to, to, to just 
here's the thing, just be with that. And then later on, then there's time for doing what we're doing today to, to discuss it and to you know, look at the terminology and so on. Yeah. To try and keep those kind of separate experiences. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I noticed that in some of the modern books, they, uh, they don't actually have footnotes what they have instead. They have a, they have a big section at the back, yeah, which actually refers to certain passages in the suit, in the, in the text. And, right. So if there's something you're uncertain about, you can actually look at the back if there's any reference there to what, what you're reading about. But it's actually yeah. not, not actually, the text itself isn't actually stopped by any kind of marker or anything right. like that. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I think and that's, that's actually quite a nice way of doing it. it. Is, yeah. 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 So if you have it back, in, particularly in this case, you can have a glossary, and it, or not even have, have a glossary, you can have like a, a reference point which takes you to a place where this particular concept is discussed. Yeah. Like the Tevicha is very easy. Yeah. You can just uh, have a reference point to click onto something yeah, which takes you to any suit that explains the idea of Tevicha. Yeah. 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 I mean, in that case, it's not controversial, but not, not all, in yeah. a lot of cases, yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so this one, this is also quite an, it was an interesting one to try to translate. This is the early verses of Vasava. First, one kills oneself. Actually, I should trans, <laughs> translate, you don't need one. I tried to get rid of all the ones, I have to do that before I've done them. You never say one in English. First, you kill yourself, then you kill others. You kill yourself really dead, like someone who kills birds using a dead bird as a decoy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So now this, this 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 image is very hard. This is a very difficult verse, and that's only a kind of a t- tentative translation, really. Um, anyway, a holy man's color is not on the outside. A holy man is colored on the inside. Whoever does bad deeds, such a one is truly dark, Sujampati. Okay. So another interesting thing. So first of all, there's the interesting first verse. First you kill yourself, then you kill others. You kill yourself really dead, like one who kills birds using a dead bird as a decoy. So <laughs> How do you kill birds, right? You kill, first you kill a bird. I'm going to kill a bird in order to kill others, right? So, yeah. I don't think it's instructions on how to do murder. I think it's... <laughs> I think it's a. Uh, uh, anyone got any ideas what it means? I just translated it, I don't know. <laughs> Probably means that, like, if you realize non self and then you teach the Dharma, then this is the things that. So you're taking killing in a positive sense? Well, it's like you are the dead bird, you know? So okay. it's like you are this kind of. You're not really a self anymore. Okay. And then when you teach the Dharma, it's kind of like other you're kind of killing other people's sense of self, as if you yeah. are the dead bird attracting other birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're all getting killed too. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, when, when I read it, I took it in, in a negative sense that you're you're destroying yourself by doing your bad conduct or something, and you're destroying yourself and destroying others, bringing others in. But, but you could also interpret it in a positive way as well. Yeah, that's the thing with poetry, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you read it again. Okay, first you kill yourself, then you kill others. You kill yourself really dead. <laughs> like someone who kills birds using a dead bird as a decoy. You, you, you kill yourself really dead? Really dead, yeah. Not just a little bit dead. <laughs> uh, 
suhatan hanti atana. So suhatan, well there. Upe hananti atana. Pacha hananti so pare. Suhatan hanti atana. We don't say never back him that doesn't, necessarily, doesn't have to mean die, hatan, hat, 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 like destroy or something like that. Yeah. So again, if you, just, you can mean to destroy yourself. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. So for, the, for the last one, we're talking about using a deep koi for hunting. Yeah. And that's probably more, more literally killing. But yeah, I did rely on Norman's discussion and the commentary. <coughs> but you're right, hanati han, han, could be just to destroy something. Mm. In the next verse, I used holy man for Brahman. Is Actually, um, there's uh, another uh, Indian mystic, I've forgotten his name. It's about uh, killing the defilements. Right? Yeah, it's sort of, uh, I think it's used in Indian mysticism. Yeah, yeah. So I think it probably can be read both ways. It's, you know, it's either about, first of all, getting rid of your defilements, and then you can help others get rid of their defilements. Yeah. Or else it could mean that if you go down a bad way and do, do bad things, and you, you're subject to death, and you also drag along others with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the next verse, a holy man's color is not on the outside, a holy man is colored on the inside. So I used a holy man for Brahman here. Is that a good, good translation of Brahman? Sometimes I use Brahman more specific, just kept it as Brahman. But in cases like that, is that right? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, holy man. Mm-hmm. The meaning comes across. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually, it's actually almost, um, it's almost too precise. Actually, holy man. The word Brahman comes. The, the original root of the word Brahman seems to be um, uh, what we sometimes use in, in, in anthropological terms. They call mana, which is uh, a Polynesian word meaning something like magical power. And so Brahma means something like the, the, the original root of it means something like the, the force of life or the, 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 the power of the universe, which is kind of wielded by, the, by, I guess, in those days, maybe the witch doctor or something like that, right? So it's this, 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 this power that powers you up. And, uh, uh, so, and the word holy, I think, also has a similar root, a similar kind of root meaning, this kind of idea of power. Whoever does bad deeds, such a one is truly dark, Sujampati. So right at the end, we, we learned this is being addressed to a certain Sujampati. So I'm not quite sure who Sujampati is. There, I think there's a Brahma called Sujampati. That's a Hampati. I think, isn't there a Sujampati as well? Or maybe, maybe it's a variant spelling, but I think there's a Brahma Sujampati as well as a Sujampati. Yeah, so, but I'm not sure whether that's meant to be the Brahmins, Brahmas being addressed, or whether it's just... Somebody has to, who happens to be called Sir Jonathan. So again, again you, know, you, you, you do with these as with as is normal in Pali verse. The verse itself was never meant to be read in isolation. It always had its context, uh, and always we find that in Buddhist verses that uh, um, in the, the Jatakas, the Dhammapada verses, and so on, they're, they're always passed down with some kind of narrative context. Um, there may be some exceptions to that, especially when you get into longer sets of verses which are more kind of self-contained. But usually the verses had some kind of narrative context and they, they would have been uh, spoken and passed down in that way. Like there'd be some narrative around it and then the verse. But the problem, of course, is that in the form we have it today, that that narrative is supplied by the commentary, which is only written a thousand years later. So most of the time... Uh, the commentarial uh, story is not really very reliable. 
Uh, in some cases, maybe it is, but most of the time it doesn't seem to be. If you're interested to look at the commentary story, I think in the early PTS translations, which I'm not sure if we have here, do we have a Rhys Davids translation? I think we might have them upstairs, but the, the early PTS translation actually translated or sort of summarised the commentary as well as the verse. Uh, and in addition, in addition to partly proper names, uh, if you look under the name of the, the monk who's mentioned here, uh, you'll always find that he'll give a summary of the story and the commentary as well. So if you're interested to know something about the context, uh, they're your main sources. Okay, here's another one. This, this is a bit, bit uh, cynical. Sabamita. Okay, uh, cynical or almost ironic, I guess, given his name. Sabamita, the friend of everybody. Eh? Sabamita. People are attached to people. People are dependent on people. People are hurt by people, and people hurt people. What's the point of people or the things people produce? Go, leave these people who've hurt so many people. <laughs> <laughs> and so he calls himself the friend of everyone. <laughs> so, yeah. Again, you know, you see, there must be, we don't know what the context is of that. Sabamita, like a lot of these marks are not found anywhere else, right? This is the only reference we have to them. But then, I mean, there must be something behind that, right? I mean, it's obviously being heard. Yeah. Okay, next one. This is one of my favorite ones. This is Mahakala, big black. And this, there's a big black woman who looks like a crow. She broke off thigh bones, first one, then another. She broke off arm bones, first one, then another. She broke off a skull like a curd bowl, and then she assembled them all together and sat down beside them. When an ignorant person builds up attachments, the idiot returns to suffering again and again. So let one who understands not build up attachments. May I never again lie with a broken skull. Cool. Huh? So big black woman who looks like a crow. Right? So this is uh, obviously some kind of, what looks like some kind of ascetic channel ground practice, right? You still find the ascetics in India doing today, and uh, like the Agora ascetics and other ones. Uh, if you want to be really freaked out by hardcore ascetics, then you can go onto YouTube and just search for Agora ascetics, and yeah, they do some pretty outrageous kind of things. But, uh, this one's relatively mild in comparison. Um, so, from, from the description, I mean, it sounds like she's actually like she broke off thigh bones first, one then another, arm bones then one then another, and then the skull. So, she's actually like assembling a skeleton, right? So, she's going around to all the different you know, bones and discarded skeletons there and breaking them all off and then assembling a kind of a, a, a person out of all of these bits, right? And then sit down beside them, presumably to, I don't know, meditate or contemplate or something. We're not really sure. Um, but that's some kind of practice. And this is actually quite unusual. It's a, it's a disputed area in Indology. There was an, uh, some articles by Richard Gombrich discussed this some time ago. Um, these practices are very common in um, contemporary Hinduism. And there was some debate about whether they're found in earlier forms of Indian religious practice. We don't find them mentioned, I don't think, in the Upanishads. Uh, and so Gombrich was actually referring to this specific verse and one or two others in the Terra and Terigata uh, as evidence that these kinds of practices were current in the time of the Buddha. 
and uh, he argued also that that was probably who Angulimala was, uh, that he was probably uh, an ascetic who was doing this kind of practice and then actually wearing the, um, the finger bones around his neck. Um, so this is an uh, interesting one, which I don't know whether this might be taken to reflect on uh, recent past history of Bodhinyana Monastery. But anyway, when your head is shaven and you're wrapped in the outer robe, you'll have many enemies when you receive food and drink, clothes and lodgings. Knowing this danger, this great fear in honours, a monk should go forth mindfully with few possessions and not full of desire. Right? So this is a kind of warning if you're a monk and you go around um, with lots of staff and you get really well provided for, like we are here in Bodhinyana, and we've got nice goodies and nice robes to wear and really good food to eat every day and things like that, then you attract a lot of jealousy and a lot of people, uh, and even some monks who uh, maybe have, uh, you know, get envious or jealous, and so you become a target for criticism like that. Uh, but if you live very simply and you say, okay, whatever, these things don't touch you, then that's not going to matter to you at, at all. That's why I think it's a good thing, like here, you know, most of the monks here, you know, just sort of starting out and being around for a year or two, and after, after you've been around for a while, um, you know, it'd be good to do some travelling and to, you know, go and stay in some places where you just don't have anything. And just say, you know, just go and stay in a monastery, a simple monastery in Sri Lanka or Thailand or whatever, Burma, and just know what that's like. You know, just travel with a, with a bowl and the robes and just have like a hut made out of three pine leaves or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, don't speak for two years. Don't speak for two years, yeah, and hang around in child grounds and stuff. Whatever, it doesn't have to be like outrageously ascetic, but you just have to, until you've done that and you know what it's like, then you never really know how much are you attached to having a nice hut to go back to, how much are you attached to having Uncle Brown come along and make you feel happy in the morning, right? And how much, all of these things you get used to. And so you don't really know until you've tested yourself. So this next one is from Nanda. Of course, we know Nanda being the uh, uh, cousin of the Buddha, cousin, I think. Half brother. Half brother. Half brother, yeah. In the, in, uh, depending on the, 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 the dubious and little known understanding of family relations in the Sakyans, but anyway, half brother of the Buddha. Uh, I used my mind unwisely. I was addicted to ornamentation. I was vain, fickle, tormented by desire for sensual pleasures. But with the help of the Buddha, the kinsman of the sun, so skilled in means, I practiced wisely and extracted any attachment to being reborn from my mind. Okay, next one. Sirima. If they praise someone who doesn't have samadhi, the praise is in vain, as they don't have samadhi. If they rebuke someone who does have samadhi, the rebuke is in vain, as they do have samadhi. Pretty straightforward, but very nice sentiment. And so this next one is uh, Balaji. And this is a, was an extremely difficult one to translate. Uh, I had to, it was one of the few that I actually had to do a bit of research and so on to find out actually I had not the slightest clue what I was talking about. But here's, here it goes. That king was named Panada, whose sacrificial post was golden. Its height was 16 times its width, and the top was a thousandfold, with a thousand panels and a hundred ball caps adorned with banners made of gold. There the seven times six hundred gods of music danced. 
Okay? Now, it's obviously a slightly different kind of flavour than we're getting from most of the verses here, okay? Nothing about staying in my little hut and meditating while the rain falls down or anything like that. Seems to be referring to, I don't know, a jataka perhaps, or a folk tale of some kind, some story. A king named Panada, I don't know who King Panada was. And uh, in Norman's translation, uh, it really seemed to kind of not convey the point of it all. Like you had this uh, idea of like the yupa, which is a, a sacrificial post that's used in the Brahmanical sacrifices. And so I had to go back and, and try to look at pictures of what these sacrificial posts looked like, because it was very difficult to figure out actually how the verse was constructed and what it means. But the idea was that you, you, you um, this is usually for the horse sacrifice. And so the horse sacrifice is intended to establish sovereignty over a country, right? So this is for a king doing a sacrifice, probably a horse sacrifice, although it doesn't actually say that. And so you set up a post, which would be like a tree trunk that you chop down for the occasion, decorate it and so on. And so the, the description of the Brahmanical rituals are actually very much like this, that you, you know, decorate it with gold and you hang it with banners and so on. And you can see actual pictures in ancient coins uh, of doing this sacrifice with, with the actual banners hanging off the things. And the, and, and the ball caps is like at the, the top of the post, they would have like a, a cap with, with, with a ring through it that they tie the horse onto. Right? So that's when it says like, like a thousand... A uh, hundred ball caps. Actually, they usually just have one, but this is obviously exaggerated for mythical purposes. But that's, the, that's what the ball cap is. It's where you'd actually tie the horse on who's going to be sacrificed in the horse sacrifice. And so um, there the seven times 600 gods of music dance. So that's the, the Gandharvas uh, who are dancing at the sacrifice. So what exactly the Dharma point of this is, I have no clue. But I presume that there probably would have been one uh, in the story. So there's, again, this one which sort of cries out for some kind of background story to give you some, some kind of meaning for it. Okay, here's another one, more straightforward. This one, Vita Soka. Who knows who Vita Soka is? King Soka. King Soka's brother, I think. Yeah, King Soka's younger brother. So this, the, the period of composition of the Terragata goes up to the time of King Ashoka. So most of the marks that we know about uh, lived in the time of the Buddha. Um, a few of them lived later. A few of them seem to appear from the verses who were written later, in this one being one example. Uh, but it seems to me likely that the, the bulk of them actually come from the time of the Buddha. Um, and uh, perhaps a few later on, like this one. The barber approached to shave my head. I looked up, I picked up a mirror and looked at my body. My body looked vacant. I was blind, but the darkness left me. My fancy hairdo has been cut off. Now there is no more rebirth into any state of existence. Okay? So here's uh, someone who's brought up as a prince in the, in the kingly family. His, his barber's coming along to do his hairdo. If you've seen the, the uh, 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 sculptures in Sanchi and places like that, you'll see that all of the, the lay people, especially the wealthy lay people, all have these incredibly fancy hairdos and so on that, that they did. And obviously the barber must have been quite a, a, a skilled profession in those days. And uh, so here he's saying, now it's all been cut off, there's no more rebirth. So he obviously became a monk. Okay, here's another uh, uh, little one that has a bit of a kind of a background to it. This is from Upavana. So Upavana was one of the monks who was the, uh, an attendant for the Buddha, uh, for Ananda. The worthy one, the world's holy one, the sage is afflicted by, afflicted by winds. 
If there's hot water, give it to the sage, Brahma. I wish to bring it to the one who's honoured by those worthy of honour, revered by those worthy of reverence, and respected by those worthy of respect. It's a kind of little episode where the, obviously the Buddha was sick, and uh, so just a little verse saying, come on, get some, get some hot water for the Buddha. Next one, Isi Dinner. I've seen lay disciples who have memorized discourses saying, sensual pleasures are impermanent, but they are passionately enamored of jeweled earrings, desiring children and wives. To be honest, they don't know Dharma. Despite saying sensual pleasures are impermanent, they don't have the power to cut their lust, so they're attached to children, wives, and wealth. I wonder whether impermanent is the... This is Anicca, presumably. Impermanent, is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I guess so, yeah. I wonder whether that is a case where unreliable might be more powerful than impermanent. Yeah. Are, are unreliable. Impermanent is kind of very, it's a bit um, uh, philosophical almost, uh, whereas yeah, yeah. unreliable is much more clear, much more, you know, much more kind of, yeah. I, I think more, perhaps more to the point. Yeah. Unreliable. Yeah. yeah. This, this is one of the, you know, I, I think you mentioned this before as well on your little blog post about the, uh, your translation of this one. Uh, and you mentioned Ajahn Brahm, how he, you know, how he likes to t- use the ordinary words of the, the Vinaya and actually apply the ordinary meanings to the right. philosophical uh, material as well, so yeah. to understand actually what lies behind it. Uh, and one of the interesting uh, uses of the word nitsha, not anitta, but nitsha, uh-huh. is as, as a regular meal, right? Uh, right? It doesn't mean permanent, it means a regular meal. Uh, right. And what is irregular is that which, un- which is unreliable, which is not yeah. reliable. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think there's a good case also, also in that, that sense, to actually translate Anicca as unreliable rather than impermanent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Impermanent is, is very kind of... A, it is, it's, it's, kind of, yeah. it's kind of philosophical. Philosophical. So yeah. I think that basically, you know, if you look at the people who have translated texts into English, they're either endologists or linguists or philosophers. Right. Yeah. Mm. So those are really the three main categories. Mm. So does, did anyone get that reference that Ramada was talking about, the, the regular meal? Like in the Vinaya you have a thing where... Um, you can a lay person can invite a monk to come for their dana or for something else, right? So you might have other kind of invitation. Uh, you might just do it on a one-off occasion, or you might say, you know, come to my house every day, or come to my house whenever you like, or something like that. And so that's called a nicha pavarana, or nicha bhato is like a regular meal. So you're, you're actually invited every day. So obviously, it doesn't mean a permanent meal. It doesn't mean you're just eating non-stop for the rest of eternity. <laughs> but it just means that you can rely on that. If, if, if you need that invitation, you can go there. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So, oh, someone... Uh, I don't, I don't, I've got a long way to go with this. So someone yeah. tell me the time to get down. <laughs> I don't want to take up too much time. Can you read... Um, it's right at the end. But could you read Talaputta? Yeah, 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 yeah. To finish it up. Thing. We'll do it to a few more. I was, I, was, uh, I was thinking of doing that next week. Okay. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. Kalaput is more, more substantive. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, his is his, 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 my favorite. Okay. Okay, here's another interesting one. Sona Portiria. Again, I don't know who Sona Portiria is apart from this. Night with its garland of stars is not just for sleeping. Those who are conscious will know that night is also for waking. If I'm going to fall from the back of an elephant and be trampled by the tuskers that follow, better for me to die in battle than to live on in defeat. <laughs> okay, here's another one. Usaba. Again, you've got to wonder about some of these names. Usaba being a kind of a poetic word for an elephant. Bull. Oh, Usaba for a bull. Sorry, you're right, bull. 
So Usuba must be, oh, maybe, maybe it is his name, Usuba. Anyway. I arranged a robe on my shoulder, the color of young mango sprouts. Okay, so this is a man who pays attention to the color of his robes. <laughs> then I entered the village for arms while sitting on an elephant's neck. Right? So imagine that, you've got the nice mango-colored robe on the back of an elephant going for arms. <laughs> but when I dismounted from the elephant, I was moved by inspiration. At first I was burning, but then I was peaceful. I realized the end of defilements. Okay? So... <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, the... the uh, Mine used to get up to all kinds of things in those days. <laughs> I was moved, moved by inspiration, so the Pali Sangvega is the term here. They often say a sense of urgency, but uh, inspiration is good. I think awe. Awe is also quite a good one for Sangvega. I was awed. Anyway, but here he's... And so again, it's, it's talking about the, the, the emotional kind of response that can happen. It can happen any time. And this, again, is one of the things I think which is very characteristic of the Teragata and the Terigata, is it shows how just spontaneous and unpredictable these things are, right? And often when you look at the suttas, when the Buddha just sort of sits down there and says, yes, and then here a monk sort of shaves off his hair and beard and he goes forth and he takes the sealers and then he goes into town for arms and he comes back and he sits there in jhanas and he gets into the four jhanas and then he recollects his past life and then boom, he's to farmers are ended. And you think, wow, that's fantastic, you know. <laughs> and, but he's showing, well, actually, it's not quite as straightforward as that, right? Things go in windy and unpredictable ways. Uh, and so he's this monk who, you know, and this is a really good reflection, actually, you know, to think, He's a monk who all the other monks would have been thinking, oh my god, there he goes again. And he's going along feeling so happy with himself in the back of the oh, oh. You can imagine what Kasapa was thinking. Right? And uh, <laughs> he's preparing another fiery discourse about how the Sicilian decline. But then he gets enlightened. Okay, here's another interesting thing. So it's overestimation. Overestimation? Have <laughs> 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 you already thought he was a monk? Yeah. I mean, you're saying those Thai monks in the private jet with their Louis Vuitton bags uh-huh. weren't actually doing the wrong thing? Well, absolutely, yeah. That line was a bit possible. That line, uh, I think it's, well, there's a line at the end that says, like, Sometimes it's translated there's an agitation, there's a fear, and then there was peace, and then there's a light. Uh-huh. What's, the, what's the part for that? Do you remember? Um, yeah, well, this one, this one is, I think, unique. Oh, that's a unique one. Yeah. It's another one that occurs like again. <coughs> yeah. It's like almost like a standard way of yeah. describing it in like three steps. Yeah. And this one, I think, is a unique phrase. Yeah, so I'm dito tada santo. At first I was burning, then I was peaceful. Mm. Adito. Yeah, just a short form of Adito. Mm-hmm. Well, it's all talking about your emotional response to the Dharma rather than the, the kind of the, the theory of it, but how they actually felt about it. I mean, there was nothing actually happened, right? Nobody actually said anything to him or anything like that, but somehow that just came to him. Okay, next one, Kapatakura. This fellow, Rag Rice, he sure is a rag. This place has been made for practicing jhana, like a crystal vase 
filled to the brim with the nectar of the deathless into which enough dhamma has been poured. Don't nod off, Ran. I'll smack your ear. <laughs> not knock in the middle of the Sangha. You haven't learned a thing. Okay? So here's uh, a cup of takura. It's like, like, you know, here we are in this beautiful hall. It's all here, everything for practicing dhamma and doing meditating. And, and, and all you're doing is sitting there falling asleep. Watch out. Give it a whack. <laughs> Uh, so this is the verses of Magaraja, first one, verse two, Magaraja. Your skin is nasty, but your heart is good. Right? <laughs> Magaraja, you always have samadhi, but in the nights of winter, so dark and cold, how will you get by, huh? To which Magaraja replies, I've heard that all the Magadans have an abundance of grain. I'll make my bed under a thatched roof, just like those who live in comfort. So, not a very charming way of addressing the monkeys. Anyway. Okay, so the next one is Visaka Panchalaputta. This is a couple of verses talking about uh, behavior, particularly behavior in Sangha and Sangha meetings. One should not suspend others from the Sangha nor raise objections against them, and neither disparage nor raise one's voice against one who is crossed to the farther shore. One should not praise oneself among the assemblies, but be without conceit, measured in speech and of good conduct. For one who sees the goals, so very subtle and fine, who has wholesome thoughts and humbleness and cultivates the Buddha's ethical conduct, it's not hard to gain Nibbana. Okay, uh, this is versus oh, uh, Anupama. Anupama, the incomparable. The conceited mind, addicted to pleasure, impales itself on its own stake. It only goes where there's a stake, a chopping block. I declare you the demon mind. I declare you the insidious mind. You've found the teacher so hard to find. Don't lead me away from the goal. And so here, like, um, like the verse of Talaputta, he's addressing his mind in a, like a, almost like a, you mind, you demon. Right? You found the teacher, so just <laughs> don't take me away. Pachaya from the threes. I went forth five days ago, trainee, with my heart's goal unfulfilled. I entered my dwelling and an aspiration arose in my mind. I won't eat, I won't drink, I won't leave my dwelling, nor will I lie down on my side until the dart of craving is pulled out. See my energy and effort as I practice this way, I've attained the three knowledges and fulfilled the Buddha's instructions. Yasoja, with knobbly knees, thin, with veins matted on his skin, eating and drinking in moderation, this person's spirit is undaunted. Pestered by gadflies and mosquitoes in the awesome wilderness, one should mindfully endure like an elephant in the head of the battle. A monk alone is like Brahma. A pair of monks are like devas. Three are like a village. And more than that is a rabble. <laughs> <laughs> right? So one monk is like Brahma, two like Davis, three is a village, and more than that is a rabble. 
uh, when the crane with its beautiful white wings, startled by fear of the dark thundercloud, flees seeking shelter, then the river Ajikarani delights me. When the crane so pure and white, startled by fear of the dark thundercloud, seeks for a cave to shelter in, but can't see one, then the river Ajikarani delights me. Who wouldn't be delighted by the rose apple trees that adorn both banks of the river there, behind my cave? Rid of snakes, that death-mad swarm, the lazy, cro- the lazy frogs croak. Today isn't the time to stray from mountain streams. Ajikarani is safe, pleasant, and delightful. And so just in, sitting there enjoying it. How, how good is it here to sit here beside this thing, watching the birds flying to and fro, seeing the trees, and then listening to the frogs. Right? So that last verse was a very difficult one to interpret, um, but what it seems to mean uh, is that, 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 that for some of the, the, the frogs are there, the snakes have gone, right? That death-mad swarm, right? Very, it's a very hard one to figure out what it means, but that's what I think it means. It's the snakes are a death-mad swarm, and they've gone away, and so the frogs can be lazy and croak, and they're sitting there thinking, oh, we're so happy being here. So even the frogs are happy to sit there and uh, just be content. So how much more would I do so? Okay. So that's, is that enough? I think it's going to be enough for tonight. Here we go. Right. So. Okay. There we go. Oh. 